want to speak to you just uh, for a few practical moments before I preach this morning. I want to take out your note takers, journals there, or pen and paper, and I'll try to give you a couple things that might help you in the ministry. The first thing I want to just share with you is what I like to call the ABCs of ministry training and just three little principles that you can apply in your life and that you can teach to others. Very, very simple, but I find these little antidotes sometimes help me to have uh, some philosophy in, in my life and help others in their life as well. Maybe you'll remember these. There are three little principles that every leader needs to remember, three principles that are helpful in ministry training and development. Uh, the first principle is the principle of appearance. And uh, I believe that appearance is important. Th these are not in any order, but uh, in speaking about ministry, of course, we're out here in the parking lot. It's a little challenging. But, you know, a lot of people uh, in the ministry don't place the proper emphasis on just setting the right atmosphere and having the right appearance, both personally and in the sense of their ministry environment, their auditorium, their, uh, their facilities, their landscaping. And I, I want to just challenge you to do your best in that area. I think it's a way of training. I remember when uh, General John Teichert visited our church years ago. Uh, at that time, he was a major in the Air Force. And I'll never forget, he said to me, he said, I watched how the choir walked in. He was an unsaved man. He said, I watched, I watched how you walked in. He said, I watched how the piano started playing right at 11 o'clock. And then he said something I'll never forget. He said, and I noticed that your shoes were shined. And he said, I thought to myself, if that man can take care of himself and have some order in the church, I'm going to come back and listen to what he says next Sunday. Now, that's a secular thought, but I truly believe that God's house and God's work should be something that sets a standard for other people. And so I think in training other people, whether it's a school class, whether it's a camp like Brother Herbster has, whether it's church, we need to do our very best to strive for excellence in the appearance of things. Secondly, the second way we train is our behavior, our behavior. Uh, that is uh, our integrity, our, our way of living, our honesty, paying our bills on time, uh, being on time, uh, having a testimony in the community that is something that people look up to. Uh, behavior is so important. And, and I'll tell you this. I want you to jot this little statement down as it pertains to behavior. And that is that people do what people see. People do what people see. Would you say that with me? People do what people see. So that's why, even though we have a large church, even though I've pastored uh, since about uh, 1995, what some would call a mega church, a church of over 2,000 uh, in Sunday morning attendance, uh, even though I'm busy, all of that, every Saturday or Thursday, I'm at a soul winning, public soul winning time getting a partner, and going out, knocking on doors every week. Why? Because people do what people see. That's why when it's time to sing at church, I'm not talking to the guy next to me. Uh, I'm not you know, telling a joke with the guy on the front row. If it's time to sing, I'm going to sing because people do what people see, and they need to see me supporting the song director at that moment. Uh, and and I, just, I could go on with that, but one of the ways we teach is by our behavior. And then the C is the word compassion. Compassion. Spiritual leaders need to have uh, an emphasis uh, on proper appearance and excellence. 
an emphasis on our daily behavior and our ministry behavior. And then we must have compassion. Uh, and of some have compassion making a difference. And I believe that, that uh, this will be something that uh, in the Lord's work sets, sets your ministry apart. And so many churches today have uh, just grown cold because there's, there's very little compassion, very little in the way of a burden for lost souls. And pray for this and seek uh, to have compassion on those with whom you work and, and uh, with those in your family that are lost. It's such a different uh, difference maker. All right, so those are the ABCs of, of leader, leadership training. Just three simple thoughts. Let me give you a few more. I'm going to give you this next quick talk, the marks of a mighty church. What are some of the marks of a mighty church? I want to share this with you. What are some things that as a pastor you should pray for? You know, I was walking on the campus last night. I was walking with one of our deacons. And as we were walking along, and he's uh, one of our security members, and and uh, and he's kind of shadowing me a little bit, you know, and we were walking there. And as I was walking along with him, I, I stood over here in this promenade area, kind of by the water fountain with the gazebo and kind of in between uh, Revels and West Wing here. And, and my wife was with me, and I said to the deacon, I said, you know, when I was in my 20s, if I would have walked on this campus and if I would have just looked around here at the buildings and the landscaping and the people there would have been something in me that would have literally burned within me saying, God, would you use my life to build a church like this? It, it would have burned in me. And I remember, I can tell you, churches that I attended when I was in my 20s. And I remember visiting some great churches that had soul-winning fervor and large buildings and loving people. And every time I just, I, I was curious how did this happen? God, would you use me? Students, do you understand that, uh, what is it now, 20, let's see here, about uh, 20, 25 years ago, there was nothing on this property except alfalfa? Do you understand that, uh, that the Lord has allowed us to see some great things? And by the way, I give him the glory for it, but some of, there ought to be some men in this in this chapel service, when you just walk around, that, that you'll just take a moment and pause and, and, and just say, Lord, let me see in some city in America some standard raised up for soul winning and preaching. That ought to be a dream in your heart, that God would use you in that way. And I'll tell you seven things that I've dreamed for and, and tried to ask the Lord for in our church. Number one, biblical preaching. Preaching is the engine that pulls the whole train. And if we don't have strong, biblical, expository-styled preaching in our pulpits, the church is going nowhere. And, and young men and young women as well learn to love preaching. You hear a lot of it here. And if you're not careful, it can kind of seem like, oh boy, here we go again. But I'm going to tell you, there's something rich and wonderful about the Bible. You'll never have enough learning from God's Word. Keep a hunger for it. And appreciate the preaching of God's word. And here, let me tell you what, you're going to hear all kinds of preachers in college, some loud, some soft, some country, some city. But if you have a heart to learn, you'll get something out of every sermon. And so biblical preaching, number two, great churches have a spirit of love. The Holy Spirit brings this. It's a spirit of love. 
Um, and I'm, I'm very diligent and passionate to see that that remains in our church. What do you mean by that? That means if I find out that there's maybe a few people that are crossways with each other, I'll, I'll go to them or I'll have a staff member go and I'll say, hey, 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 we can't have this at Lancaster Baptist Church because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He can be easily quenched. And we work at keeping people right with one another, just, just like a husband and wife need to work at that. We work with it here at the church because at any moment, I want to be able to grab any man in this church to go out soul winning, to pray together. There should be nothing between us. And a strong church is a church that has a real spirit of biblical love. And by the way, that could be said about a strong Bible college as well. Number three, there must be an emphasis on spirit-filled living. An emphasis on spirit-filled living. Be not drunk with wine or success but be filled with the Spirit. Now, students, can I just say something to you, and some of you will get this and some of you won't, but I'll say it anyways. In an institution like a college, by the very nature of having hundreds of people uh, with varied schedules, backgrounds, philosophies, and standards, it is necessary that we would have institutional rules including dress rules and all these different types of rules. I don't apologize for that. But we all understand that there's coming a moment in your life when you graduate, and you'll set your own rules about those types of things. And what we've tried to emphasize in the church is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. You do not have to tell a Spirit-filled Christian to be a soul winner they will exalt Christ. You don't have to tell a spirit-filled woman to dress modestly. She wants to bring attention to the Lord, not to herself. You don't have to tell a spirit-filled man not to drink alcohol. He doesn't want to be under the control of alcohol. He wants to be under the control of God Almighty. So I believe it's important that our institutions have rules, but it's more important in the local church that we constantly emphasize the need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never lead you wrong. He'll never lead you into sin. And we must learn to walk in the Spirit that we would not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That is God in you, and you need to know Him and obey every impulse of the Holy Spirit. Number four, I believe that a mighty church is a church that has hymn-based music, H-Y-M-N-based music. Now, I believe there's a place for newer songs. We just heard one a moment ago, His Grace Still Amazes Me. Two years ago, I'd never heard that song. Biblical, wonderful, beautiful song. And this is not a lecture about music, but let me just give you a foundational principle that you should have at the base of your music ministry, at the majority of your music that you sing as a church, godly hymns that are doctrinally sound, strong melody, there are many reasons for this. First of all, I want to please the Holy Spirit in worship, not my flesh. The first gauge to me is not does it make me move or make me feel good. The first gauge to me is, is this honoring Christ? Is this, is this a spiritual song? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So have a, a hymn-based. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a newer song. We just heard uh, the beautiful use of the, of the flute. There's various instruments that can be used. 
and I'm not going to give you a lecture today about which publishing houses and so forth. You'll have to learn and find that there are some publishing houses that uh, are, are probably ones that when they do have a good song, it's kind of an accident, and you'll have to determine uh, the, the balance of what to use and what not to use in the newer music. But let me just say, if you stay hymn-based, let me say this, if you will stay hymn-based, if you'll stay with the King James Bible and stay a Baptist, you have a good chance of remaining fundamental until Jesus calls you home. And we see a lot of men changing all of these things, and pretty soon they're not Baptist, pretty soon they're just who knows where. But let me encourage you, uh, I understand uh, the trends of the day as well as probably anybody here, let me encourage you to have a distinctive church. Uh, have the kind of church that honors the Lord Jesus Christ, not the church that's like every other church uh, in town. Number five, there must be compassion for souls. Can I tell you one of the reasons, and you're, you'll hear over, over time, you'll hear online or you'll people say, well, let me tell you about the Independent Fundamental Baptist. Okay, here we go. Let me tell you about them. I can tell you about the problems. I can tell you about problems in every group. Let me tell you something, students. Don't be ashamed of your heritage. You wouldn't even be here if some independent Baptist preacher didn't scratch off some dirt and start a church and lead your family to Christ. What kind of a fool makes fun of the heritage of the people that brought their family to Jesus Christ? An ingrateful fool, that's the kind. Be thankful that you're saved. Be thankful for those that led you to Christ. And sometimes people get critical uh, but let me tell you one of the great things about our heritage, and that is our missions emphasis and our soul-winning emphasis and even bus ministry emphasis. And I'm going to tell you something. I, I, uh, I asked uh, a very famous evangelist recently, whose name I'll not mention, but everyone would know his name. And I asked him, I said, do you know of many churches that train soul winners and have personal soul winning? And this particular evangelist knows a lot of people, Brother Getch, in the Southern Baptist Convention. And he said to me, he said, no. He said, they give their offerings to their Lottie Moon offering at Christmas time. But he said, I don't know of any churches that are training soul winners and going out in the streets soul winning. And we wonder why America is going to hell in a handbasket. Guys, don't lose your compassion for souls. And, and, and be thankful that we have a history of coming from a soul winning background. And that's something that you have to take up in your generation. And you might find creative uh, methods. I like to say that faith, in fact, Spurgeon said this, faith hath many inventions. Jot that down. Faith hath many inventions. You know, uh, do you know why he said that? He said that, Dr. Rasmussen, in his morning-by-morning morning devotional, on the passage from Mark where the four men opened up the roof and let their friend down. How many of you remember that story? Remember that? They let their friend down. And uh, they were bringing them to Christ. And the title of the devotion was, Faith Hath Many Inventions. In other words, if you want to get somebody to Christ, you'll find a way. You'll find a way. And you and your generation, you're going to find some ways, maybe technologically, uh, maybe some methods that I have never used. This is not about methods as much as it is to say, keep your heart tender for souls. It's so important. So many folks argue about so many things, but they lose their heart for souls. All right, and then let me say this, number six, great churches, mighty churches, are churches that give sacrificially. They give sacrificially. You study the account in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 about the churches of Macedonia, 
though they were in poverty, yet they gave liberally by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you a little secret about Lancaster Baptist Church. This is not a rich church. This is a church of people who have, by the grace of God, given generously, who have just allowed the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, I, I have seen uh, police officers and guys in the Air Force and just folks with regular jobs give hundreds of thousands of dollars to build these buildings, to send the missionaries. And I believe one of the marks of a great church is that there's a generosity in their heart to help others know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that all of you will practice that even while you're in college. I know you don't have much, but always look to see a need and try to be a blessing and let the Lord use you in being a blessing. And I'll give you one more. I can give you many more. Number seven, a mighty church has a distinctive testimony, a distinctive testimony. Now, I don't think we want to be a testimony of holier-than-thou, judgmental. None of us should want that type of a testimony. But there ought to be something about a biblical church that is distinct, something that when people visit, something that when they see your life, they can see that it is distinct. That's why, for me, I don't decorate our auditorium like a nightclub. I don't like to turn all the lights down and, and uh, kind of have to get you know smoke machine going to get the mood going. There's times we'll dim the lights for dramas or for Easter, and there's seasonal lights right now for the fall on the back wall. Though I think there's appropriate use of technology, but I don't want, listen, I don't want to depend on technology to bring the mood. I want God to bring the mood. I want, I want to move from God's truth to emotion, not from emotion into my beliefs. Because when you go from emotion to your belief, you're going to have some screwy emotion, uh, emotions and beliefs. You want to have straightforward beliefs that come into the emotions if those emotions come. And so I think and believe that church should be distinctive. And I know everyone is going to have a little bit different way of coming to that. But I just believe that when our uh, city friends come, I have our congressman uh, coming Sunday. And he, in fact, our congressman came here three months ago and heard the gospel and came forward. And Dr. Rasmussen led him to Christ. And uh, he'll be at my house, in fact, tonight for a reception. But he saw something in our church. Now, listen, fellas, listen to me. And I'm, I'm almost to the point where I'm going to start naming some names as I get older because I don't want to, I, I want to make sure you're understanding it. I won't name the name, but there's a church that he'd been attending in Southern California. It's a cool church. It's a hip church. And he'd been going there as a successful businessman, as a congressman, for several months. Listen to me. They had an awesome band. They had a great light package. They, they, were, they were rocking and rolling. And they never told the man how to get saved. They, they didn't have enough distinctive in their message and in their methodology to lovingly confront him. And he told me as much. He said, I've been going to such and such church, and they never told me that. How many of you would agree with me? That's wrong. And I know that we don't want to be stodgy and old, too old-fashioned or whatever, but there needs to be enough of a distinction that if they walk in and they feel like they're in some kind of a country club 
nightclub type setting and they feel like, yeah, I understand this and this is no different than where I usually go. Why would they get saved? <laughs> there needs to be in the message and in the, in the methods a biblical distinctiveness. I'll illustrate to you. There are places uh, where you can be sharp and still be distinct in different ways. For example, Christian camp. I would imagine at Southland, I might be wrong, that your speakers wear a polo shirt and some docker pants, clean, sharp, pressed, but that's appropriate at camp. I, I, I allowed some of our teachers on Wednesday night, they're teaching smaller groups. Some of them wear a sport coat without a tie. These are not Bible doctrines. These are preferences. But when I, when I stand in church or in chapel to preach to you, to hold this sacred book, I'm going to wear a suit. I'm going to stand up as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, frankly, I might take my coat off if it gets five degrees hotter out here during chapel this morning. I, I'm not making fast rules with you. I'm just trying to say, remember whose work this is. Whose work are you training for? The Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we want to represent the Lord well. So I'm not going to give you a list of, you know, how to be distinctive. Every one of you come from different churches. You're going to figure it out. But I'm just trying to make the case today that a mighty church has a distinctive sense of doing things for the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are a few thoughts I just Thought I'd share with you. Now I'm going to take about, what do I have, I guess, about 20 minutes maybe? About 20 minutes or so? Or 25, good. Take your Bible if you would, and I want you to just share a few things with you. Let's stand together as we take our Bibles. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And I, I will share with you this morning, I hope something that will be a help and blessing to you personally, and we're going to read in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered around, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Father, help me to be a blessing to our student body this morning. Continue, Lord, to bless our nation during these difficult days. May we have a revival from the church and a changing of the nation that government could never bring is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, all of us this morning have experienced a little more stress in the last six months with COVID and various related challenges. And I think one of the most important lessons we can learn about times like this is that they are God-ordained and that they have a purpose, that all of the fiery trials are Father-filtered. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? 
that God appoints and allows challenges in our lives. Now, Americans tend to deal with these problems in a lot of strange ways. Americans consume 50 million aspirin tablets every day. How many of you would say, I think my mom consumes 12 or 20 a day. Anybody? Know? How many of you say, I, I consume that many a day? Americans consume a lot of medicine trying to deal with stress. Stress is called the silent killer because it can lead to heart disease and blood pressure and chest pain and irregular heartbeat. Yet this morning, I want you to think about the fact that God allows difficult times into our life. He allows tension. And sometimes it is from that tension that great things can happen. I think one of the important points of the Sunday morning message uh, that uh, Brother Larry was preaching was the fact that without calamity, we would never be able to see the hand of God's compassion, that God uses difficulty to do great and mighty things. I think about uh, the piano, and I don't know as much about pianos as Brother Tyler Johnson or maybe Brother Hopkins, but I'm told a typical concert piano has over 240 strings that when tuned and tightened create approximately 40,000 pounds of pressure on the frame. In other words, without the tension, the piano would not bring the beautiful music that we hear. It, it requires tension. And I have seen some of the greatest works of God in our church and in my life and in your lives during seasons of tension. And what I'm praying is that out of this calamitous season, which the president blames on China, and I love it when he does that. I get a kick out of it. The China virus, he calls it which others would say Satan has brought, which others would blame on the Democrats. It really doesn't matter where it came from. These weird times we're living in, we must understand these pressure-filled times are times when we can bring great music from our lives to the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ if we learn how to properly respond to the stress. I think about the early church, how they were scattered, arrested, how in Acts 12, James, the brother of John, is killed by Herod and Peter was arrested. And in chapter 15, we find James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, now the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. You, you just, if you just follow the great works of the New Testament, you'll find that they all had stress and pressure in their life. And so I'm going to give you three quick thoughts about how to take stress and make music in your life that glorifies God. How to allow the pressure of this semester, of this season, to be a season that you look back on and say, God worked in my life during that semester. Number one, you must recognize that there is a heavenly purpose in difficulty. There is a heavenly purpose in difficulty. The Bible tells us in verse number two, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. We also notice here that God is calling us to count or to consider. Uh, he wants us to consider the reason for the trial. Sometimes we get so busy we don't pause to just count it, to consider why this is going on. And he says in verse 3, knowing this, he says, I want you to know some things about this trial. That's the same word he uses in Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good. 
God doesn't want you to go through this time feeling as though you're being persecuted or having trouble without a purpose. God has a purpose, a heavenly purpose in the difficulties. The Lord wants to bring out our best during this time. Satan, of course, would like to see our worst. There's a heavenly purpose. What is the heavenly purpose of the trial? Letter A, the development of our faith. God, right now, could be preparing America for a great revival. The development of our faith. Did you see that uh, in this passage, verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, faith is like a muscle. You've heard this before. If I take a, a barbell of weights, if I work with those weights every morning, if I do maybe three repetitions of 15 with uh, maybe 100 pounds, if I do that every day, day after day after day, my muscle memory, my muscles are going to uh, gain intensity. If I never use the muscles, they're going to atrophy. They're going to become worthless. And God, at this very moment, is allowing us to use some spiritual muscles. He's allowing us to develop our faith through these temptations uh, in verse 2 or trials. There is a, a season whereby we are being tried. You see, an untested faith is an unreliable faith. Jot that down. An untested faith is an unreliable faith. Now, I said this early in the semester. But by the grace of God, some of you will find yourselves a few years from now church planting in Asia. And some of you will find yourself going to a God-forsaken city like Portland. And others of you will find yourselves going around different places preaching and teaching the gospel. And when you do in this society in which we live that is censoring the free press and uh, moving towards socialism and repressing worship as we're experiencing now as you enter into this you're going to look back to this semester and say i'm glad that i had some trials of my faith because what will happen those people that think christian college is just about sports and fun and this and that they think that life is about them their faith muscle will be weak and they will wash out of the ministry when the trials come. So God is preparing us now that we might have a strong faith when greater trials come. The development of our faith, number letter B, the display of our faith. Notice it says in verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, Romans 5, 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. I think about two of our graduates this morning. I think about J.D. and Janelle Gibbs. Uh, Janelle came to our college from Oregon, the, west, uh, the uh, eastern side of Oregon. Her dad was a dear friend of mine, a rancher. And uh, he would come down here in the winter. He built our ball field backstop and a lot of the block around the buildings. And just a great Christian man. His daughter Janelle came to West Coast. Dr. David Gibbs, who preached for us a few weeks ago, his son J.D. came to West Coast. And they met here. Uh, and... I don't have time to give you a lesson on, on how to get to that seven-day period for engagement appointments, but it, it starts with being friendly and talking to people, and then from there, it's either a date or a courtship or whatever your background is. It's just liking somebody a lot. And from there, there's a little more time, a little more time, and, and, uh, and then there's sometimes it goes into the falling in love and getting engaged and married, and so it was with them. They got engaged, and 
And I, I'm a, how many of you can tell Brother Chapel is a traditional independent Baptist preacher? How many of you have figured that out so far? Good. All right. Good. And, and so I have, I have my idiosyncrasies, and, and um, one of them is that I like church weddings. I mean, Brother Getch, we built a $7 million auditorium to have weddings in there, and girls today want to get married in barns. I don't understand that. That I'm just telling you, I'm, you, know, you got to pray for me to have grace. I don't get it. <laughs> you know, wow, we're going to go stand in some manure and get married, you know, and whatever. And we're practicing for this right over here with this bird area right over here, I guess. But anyways, they, they met, they got engaged, and they said, uh, Pastor Chapel, would you have our, our, would you perform our wedding up at the farm in Oregon at the ranch at the barn? And I said, <laughs> I said, sure, I'll be glad to do that. And I, I, I remember flying up, one of the men in our church as a pilot, he flew me up there, and, and it was a beautiful wedding, really, the snow-capped mountains in the background, it was beautiful. And Dr. Gibbs, he had come to he had come to the weddings for my two daughters because I was a blubbering idiot. I mean, I cried during my girls' weddings, and so there he was, and he wasn't crying as hard because it was his son. It's not so bad to lose a son, to be honest with you, but but uh, he was emotional. And Brother Lawrence was emotional, and and uh, and and so so they were married, and and it was a beautiful, beautiful wedding. And the very next day, my friend Mark, he took his other daughter, Brittany, who also attended here. And they jumped on a four-wheeler, and they were running around the ranch. You know, one of those things where the second daughter had probably been neglected a little bit leading up to the wedding. He was going to spend some time with her. They came around a corner. She was driving and hit a little rock. And when they hit that rock, my friend Mark, who's, how many of you men are in Lawrence Hall? Let me see where you are. All right, that's who I'm talking about. And uh, he fell off the back of that four-wheeler, hit his head on a rock, and instantly died. Mark was a great soul winner, wonderful dad, wonderful husband. And in a moment's time, God called him into eternity. And I remember having to get back on that same little plane and seven days later preach the funeral of my dear friend. And I remember watching J.D. and Janelle go through that trying of their faith. Young married couple, her dad died one day after they got married. And I remember thinking, you know, the devil's going to try to get them discouraged through this. And, and I'm here to tell you that it was difficult for them. But did you know that one of the lead attorneys now at CLA is a West Coast Baptist graduate named J.D. Gibbs? Did you know that J.D. and Janelle are faithful soul winners and Sunday school teachers in their local church? God is using them. But you see, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. And God is taking us through a season right now to develop our faith. God will do something with this, but we must understand the trial of our faith is much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found in the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a heavenly purpose in difficulty. Secondly, there's a biblical process. There is a biblical process in difficulty. Now, notice in verse 4, the Bible says, but let patience have her perfect work. Say that with me, please. But let patience have her perfect work. Very quickly, if you're taking notes, it is letter A, a process of surrender. What do you do when trials come? Most people complain on Facebook. Most people gossip. Most people get mad. Most people, you know, unsaved people drink. There's all kinds of stupid things that people do. 
But what does a mature Christian do in this process? It is letter A, a process of surrender. Notice, please, in verse 4, let. Would you say that word with me? Let. One more time. Let or allow patience to have her perfect work. This is what we learn from Jesus Christ. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's no place in the Holy Land that touches my heart like the Garden of Gethsemane. For some reason, more than even Golgotha, when I visit the Garden of Gethsemane and I kneel down by those old uh, 2,000-year-old olive trees, and I remember that Jesus was there, and he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, and he was praying to the Father, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, say it with me, not my will, but that's what it means to allow God to work. Not my will. But Brother Chapel, I'm struggling financially. But Brother Chapel, I have a hard class. But Brother Chapel, I, I didn't, the relationships aren't going like I thought. Wait a minute. We need to step back and realize God's still working in your life. He hasn't forgotten you. And we need to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This is a process of surrender. 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Surrender your past to God, forgetting those things which are behind. Surrender your present to God. Surrender your future to God. God will bring trials into your life to bring us to a place of complete surrender. Let him have his perfect way with you. There's a process of surrender. And that will bring about, secondly, a process of maturity, of, of maturation. God is growing you in this season of your life. Notice what it says in verse 3. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work. In other words, God says, I want you to be complete. That's what the word perfect means. God says, this is all about your growth. You say, well, I thought I was going to learn theology and English and history. Yes, but we're also going to learn patience and trust and faith. Can I get an amen on that this morning? You see, we're interested in the whole man being developed, body, soul, and spirit. And God is developing your life. And we must learn that this is a process of maturing in the Lord, growing in His grace, learning about the fact that His grace is sufficient. And so there must be a heavenly purpose in difficulty. There will be a heavenly process in difficult times. And let me say finally, there is a revealed product through difficulty. A revealed product. Now, every person in the world, including yourself, will encounter various trials throughout life. Satan seeks to defeat you by tempting you to trust in your own wisdom, to live according to your own self-centered feelings. But God's will is that we would overcome and that we would give him glory. And so let me tell you what that looks like. First, letter A, we will begin to ask God for wisdom. The product of a Christian that is handling trials well is that he or she begins to seek God. God, I, I don't understand coronavirus. I don't understand but God, I'm seeking your wisdom. Look at verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, how many of you have a roommate that lacks it? Raise your hand. All right. You know what I'm talking about. How many of you are lacking wisdom, right? Students, can I tell you, every morning of my life, maybe a few exceptions, for 34 years, 
I have prayed two prayer requests. One, today, Lord God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Two, God, I beg for wisdom today. I need wisdom in so many areas of life. And trials only show me even more how much I need wisdom. And so we must ask God for wisdom. Trials reveal the need for it. The fear of the Lord, Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. His praise endureth forever. Spurgeon said the doorstep to the temple of wisdom is the knowledge of my own ignorance. And sometimes it takes a trial to show me how much I still need to learn. You ever get around someone in college or maybe someone back home and they just know everything? And sometimes you can feel like you do. That preacher was dumb, that teacher this, that student this. You know, those thoughts leave when you get cancer. You don't have those thoughts when suddenly your mother's in ICU from a car accident. Suddenly you realize how helpless you are without God. And we must find in the midst of the trial, what is it, Lord, you want me to learn? I asked this same evangelist a few weeks ago, do you think that we can have revival in America? He said, right now I think the church is too full of herself. There's not enough hunger for God. What will it take to get you and to get me hungry enough to seek his wisdom and to see change in our lives? We must ask for wisdom. When we do, we will receive it. Notice in verse 5. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally. And when we receive his wisdom, we will begin to mature spiritually. Verse 4 says, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Suddenly, this process of maturity begins. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn as we close to 1 Peter, would you please? 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. It always strikes me, that verse. Though now for a season, if need be. Let's say that together. Though now for a season, if God knows what we need. And then verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. 